Good morning, Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to another day of BD. Real quick, our prayer vigil for Collins Prostate did not work last week. He is again <laughs> on the injured reserve list. So it continues. It continues. I guess maybe we've got to get a specialist. Is there a prostate? Specialist? He's outside the door banging, wanting to get in. I think we just locked him out, but let's, yeah, let's, let's continue. So as you guys have noticed, Last couple of weeks, I've worn my Ray of Sunshine t-shirt as kind of the uniform. Yeah. I went to eat lunch at Eunice, the restaurant over in the Greenway Plaza. Three people stopped me to take a picture with that shirt. I got some texts about they really liked the shirt. So because you are, you guys are my brother. And no arms, effing no way. way. Totally. Mark, shirt for you. It's I'm mighty, almost speechless. Thank you, RPX sir. Show. Exactly. Thank this you. is amazing. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. So I wanted y'all. I wanted y'all to have matching shirts. I've ordered Colin a shirt, but to get an extra small, it takes two weeks to get him. <laughs> so I will give him. I've been working out. So there we go. All right, let's jump in. Uh, story number one: Matador Resources, publicly traded Delaware player, buys Advance Energy Partners for 1.6 billion dollars. That's a in-cap backed company. There's a tail payment of some sort of oil averages more than $85 a barrel in 2023. What do we got, Mark, on thoughts on this deal? Well, when I looked at it and it was um, in TPH's note this morning with some summary metrics, the thing that stood out to me was based on their forward estimates, they're paying it looks like around 3.2 times EBITDA, which, you know, continuing to buy cash flow down here in the low single digits mm -hmm. is uh is a pretty good look yeah I, I agree what's there there's a provision in the contract i think i was reading about that if oil prices rise there's some other kickers involved or no it was i think it was 85 dollars a barrel if it averages greater and it was something like seven and a half million dollars a month or, okay or, or something to that effect and you know that 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 to me always kind of felt like the deal is done. Let's ask for just a little, a little more. bit more. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing, that. the thing I found interesting about this deal is we have sat here on BDE for a year mm -hmm. and a half, and every time there's a private equity backed company that's bought, it's half cash, half stock, two thirds mm -hmm. stock, one third cash, and we've talked about how the private equity firms are trying to two putt it. Right? They're gonna take the stock, dribble it out over time, because that's the right. only way to get an exit. This was a 100% cash deal. This was $1.6 billion of cash. So one, I think, as best I can recall, that's like the first time I've seen just cut a check to a private equity guy. And it kind of tells me two things. Maybe we're, we're seeing a warming in the A&D market. Maybe this is a trend. And two, it also tells me that NCAP is for sure fundraising because they want to send cash back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a as an entrepreneur, I, I want all cash deals when I'm selling my company. I don't want their stock. I mean, unless it's some sort of company that I'm like, it is going up and up. But I want cash because I want to exit and get the hell out if most likely they're probably going to fire me or they're going to give me some sort of contract. So I do see this as a warming of the A&D market. I see it as a positive sign. And as a private equity firm, that's cash is king, as you know. You guys know. I mean, it's, it's cash on cash returns is all that really yeah, and, matters. And we've seen a smattering of either rumors or announcements about new oil and gas 
fund traditional oil and gas fund fundraising campaign. So it's back, baby. <laughs> after two years of outperformance in the public markets and still reasonably cheap asset valuations, you know, there's there's a chance to, you know, to continue to to extend this this opportunity. So I think on that front, you know, um, Carnelian uh, raised their fund. They went out. They hit it perfect. I think they launched literally the day Putin invaded. They caught it. Perfect. Wow. They got raised. I think Pearl, Pearl's getting their fund raised. Quantum's announced a, a raise. NCAP has announced the raise. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's happening. Are they going to call Chucky back into the game? No way. <laughs> the... Uh, I, uh, by a uh, misspelling masturbate periodically on Twitter, uh, I think you get I, banned. I, I, I yeah. think I've gotten banned, you know, somebody responded, it's you are not ER. And I was like, not the way I do it, but anyway, okay, fine. <laughs> um, the, you know, the one other point I'll say about getting cash versus stock, if you're an LP in a private equity fund, and that private equity fund is charging you management fees because they're holding public stock that you could buy on your own. Yeah. That that's a bit of a rough look. So the, it always gets pitched. It always gets pitched. Of, here, take my stock. My stock's going to triple in two or three years. It's like, even if it is, my LPs can do that on their own. And they I don't, don't and I'll get a fee. Either. I don't want to pay an extra fee. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Right. So, so any of the time you you take stock, the first message to the LPs is only way we could get a deal done. We're going to liquidate the stock Absolutely. as quick as we can. And so blah blah blah. I mean blah yeah. blah blah is right. Story so, of my life. So uh, anyway, congratulations to NCAP on that. Mark, you uh, sent a text to the the group the other day that I thought was pretty interesting, and I'm going to throw up uh, this graphic here real quick. Yeah, which one? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, basically, well, I don't know why it won't pop up, but uh, anyway. We need a good producer for this. Yeah, exactly. What the, what's the problem? Uh, anyway, basically, China is generating more electricity from coal than the whole United States generates from all sources in electricity. Right. I think we're at about 4,000 terawatt hours mm -hmm. and China's pushing 8,000 <clears> in a big chunk. And these are stack generation source bar charts. They had the EU 27. India was, was also included. India's dominated by coal-fired generation. And keep in mind that India and China are about 1.4 billion in population, respectively. So they're four plus times the population of the U.S., but the proportions of, you, you know, you kind of knew it, but the proportions of coal-fired generation speak very loudly when you see it, it, you know, that that skewed relative to the entire generation stack, which also points out, and I think you, you retweeted mm -hmm. or, yeah, you retweeted the original tweet, is that it, it goes back to the point uh, where we're talking about you know, net zero campaigns, decarbonization, et cetera, we're dealing with one atmosphere, or as you put it, there's only one section in the pool, <laughs> right? So we're dealing with one atmosphere. And I think, you know, part of this is uh, just a continuing distraction, a welcome distraction on the part of uh, particularly China and, you know, our less attractive or less favorable uh, global counterparties, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that want to continues to see us 
uh, distracted by this, but the big, you know, the big emissions problems. And if we think about the citizen, the citizen's goal in these countries is to improve their standard of living. And that's going to inherently be accompanied by a greater per capita use of energy. And unless something changes in the stack, that means more absolute volumes of, of coal emissions, uh, coal-fired generation emissions uh, hitting the atmosphere. I think those of us following this, I mean, you've got to be sort of being slapped on both sides of the face, right? Um, the World Economic Forum, all you hear from from our, um, our people representing the United States is how bad the earth is, how we need to do more. You've seen that with the IRA that um, states in the U.S. Are, are trying to attract European companies and John Kerry saying Europe is not doing as much as U.S., which is kind of laughable, right? Because Europe's always been leading. At the same time, I'm going to be blogging about this on Thursday because I drop one every Thursday about just solar in general and just the pragmatism of solar and the data behind it. And then I'm going to hit reforestation here in a couple of weeks. And I'm just going to outline the math. And, and the math is basically comes down to, but you need to read the blog, is China is doing what it needs to do to provide wealth to its people. And it's going to use coal because they have abundance of coal. So it's really anything that we're doing to try to offset that is just um, is benign. It's not going to happen. What do you what say you? You know, Brian get has a good point on this, that really the way to get to carbon zero, carbon neutral, he came on the podcast probably a year ago. His whole point was, we need to get folks to an economic standard of living where they can afford to go to carbon zero. You know, at the end of the day, we can afford it. Europe can afford it. But at the end of the Man. day, the speech we talked about last week from Constantine talking about if you're in the developing world, you're going to make the choice to provide a better life for your family. I always use the example of, and this is not completely related, but back in the day, Matt Simmons used to talk about what countries needed to do to reach a certain rung on the standard of living scale relative to the developed world. And he always used the example of Nigeria as a major exporter right. of, of crude oil, right? And he said, if Nigeria attained the lowest rung on the OECD or the G7, standard of living, which I think at that time was Spain. He may have been talking about the, the Western members that absent significant changes in the energy pie, so to speak, or the consumption mm -hmm. pie, Nigeria would become a net importer of crude, which is pretty stunning. Wow. And, and then when you compound that with population growth, which, you know, continues at, I don't know, globally right at what little over 1%, much larger numbers in the developing world and all of these kind of ambient upward pressures on, on energy consumption and demand. It's, you know, it, it really starts to, starts to add up in terms of the absolute numbers of incremental things like emissions that are, are potentially going to be added. I mean, we seem to go philosophical every time on the show, but let's, you know, and some of our listeners will hold me accountable on Twitter, hopefully. Aren't the poor always going to be amongst us? Can we really raise? That's the question that I have. It's like, can we really make a difference? I know if you're John Kerry, he's blank. He's saying that, hey, we, the few of us have been chosen to save the world. But that's my question 
to the audience and to you guys. Are we really going to change that the poor have always been poor? Are we going to are we going to change that? I mean, we're seeing nations step out of it, like a China, like the United States. But are we going to solve it globally? It's worth a a, try. It's been an amazing run over the last, call it century, century and a half in terms of pulling people out of poverty. And it's been cheap energy and free markets that have done that. And so quality of life longer. So that's you you walked right in my point. So so that's what has driven people out of poverty. But now we've got this sort of global focus on the earth is more important than that. Well, or is it? I don't know if we're ready to segue into another story related to transition, but you know, I, I think with just I'm he him, just if you wanna if you you're asking. The <laughs> you know, the just the constant availability in almost unimpeded twenty four seven, three sixty five uh, ability to share information. Yeah. The disconnect between the consuming parts of the world, i.e. the higher standard of living and the producing parts of the world, particularly as it relates to raw materials, you know, that, that is becoming more aware in places where now it's starting to be leveraged into a little bit of, of pushback. And one of the stories that we've got is, Mm. is out of, out of Peru. Yeah. And, and in fact, let's, let's jump into that story. But the Mm. one thing I want to leave us with on China can we all agree it's a crock of shit that China, who has been around a lot longer than the United States as a culture, is a developing country and doesn't have the restrictions that the first world has? Yeah. I mean, I mean are we going to talk about the elephant in the room? We're not allowed to do that, are <laughs> okay. we? We don't want to get banned on YouTube. But, That's right. Uh, but uh, now, Mark, jump into this because you, uh, again, I think you sent the 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 text around this weekend talking about Glencore and what's going on in Peru. Yeah. A little bit of my, uh, rainy day detour into mining.com and Glencore this past weekend, I think it was on Friday or Saturday ceased operations at one of its largest copper mines in Southern Peru, Peru being the number two global producer of copper. Mm -hmm. Um, They're a world scale player in a lot of other metals and minerals as well. And really the roots of this uh, decision to cease operations was on uh, worker safety related to some protests that have gotten increasingly violent and have moved out of Lima into the Southern provinces or Southern regions where the mining takes place. And they've had um, employee housing burn. They've had, you know, unrest or, or upset at, uh, a water facility that supplies water to 6,000 people in the region. And so uh, prior to this, they were operating at about 38% capacity. So production itself is down. This all sources back to uh, the impeachment of of the leftist president. And that happened in December of last year. His vice president, Pedro Castillo, was the impeached president. Um, his vice president has taken over um, the the leftist factions have not supported this change. They're clamoring for more uh, radical mm-hmm. changes all the way through Congress and with the administration. It, it does have to do between uh, or the disconnect between 
you know, the wealthy in, in the coastal metropolitan centers and then uh, the poorer parts of, of Peru, which just are inherently in the southern regions, <clears throat> the rural regions where the mining takes place. Uh, they've also had kind of an expansion of highway blockades because of the violence, and so tourism is taking a hit as well. Uh, they've, they've shut down airports and archaeological sites um, that are kind of world famous. And On my bucket list, right. for sure. So there, there, there's, there's kind of an indefinite uh, thing here, and the opposition has said, look, we're, we're, we're in this for as long as it takes. Yeah. And so it, it, it's just really a kind of a microcosm of what I think is going to become more evident, at least, where we're, we're facing a lot of upward pressure on production and demand for rare earths, for these critical metals and minerals, for renewables and, and, and batteries. And so, you know, to the extent that um, you, you do have these friction points, uh, there, there is going to be, I think, a greater awareness of of the situation or the disconnect between those who are working to produce and those who are consuming um, to benefit. And I've tried to play that out in my mind, because if you think back to the United States, the coal mines, building the railroads, all of those, ultimately unions got involved and, you know, food processing, meat packing plants, et cetera, unions got involved and ultimately did a good thing. I mean, we got better working conditions in America. We can debate whether we like okay. unions or not, but I think in the grand, in the history of it, they did a good thing. I don't know what happens in the Congo, in <clears throat> Peru, in some of these developing countries that actually changes this. I mean, do we have this as just part of life for the rest of life? Or I mean, you have inherently limited opportunity to to make a, a barely subsistence living right and, and so it's a great point uh, you know i think we've got um i think we're going to see quite a bit of illumination on the ground level details of some of the things that go on in in the congo with uh siddharth Kara's book coming out at the end of this month called cobalt red you know what what happens over time? Is there any change? It's just that these, I think these, it, it, it raises the risk, uh, particularly as, as the, um, you know, the push to accelerate the transition and the demand for these raw materials goes up. I think it's, you know, yep. it's something that bears watching. So at this, at the, I've synced his book with the release of my blog on February 2nd, which is Thursday, because I always drop on Thursday, is time is running out for in-demand metals. So it's a pretty, it's a deep dive into all the metals we need to power the energy transition. And it's astounding what I found out about, we talk about oil and gas being finite, but if you want to look at the, at the minerals and the metals that are required to transition the, glo the globe, it, we don't have enough. And it's in these places like the DRC, the Congo. I mean, I think ultimately, what are we going to see? We're going to see either wars or we're going to see countries try to partner. But but um, this is tough. We're in a tough situation. And, and finding these metals is going to be hard. We know where they are, but they're in places that we don't want to talk about. We don't want to talk about the people that work there. And it, and it goes without saying almost that 
that demand increase and increased activity if it is achievable. And some of these production numbers need to go up by 20 to 30 plus fold over a relatively short couple of three decades worth of time. And accompanying that, unless we have some major physics breakthrough, is the consumption of a lot more diesel, for example. You know, you've got mining machines that use 2 million gallons a year, and there's Absolutely. tens of thousands of those excavators working world over in surface mines. And so they're awesome to watch. By yeah, the way. they're, they're incredible machines. And um, there, there's a lot on YouTube about a lot of the granular details of how they operate and, and how difficult they are to maintain. But um, that's, you know, that's another aspect of, of what the value in the supply chain of this renewable transition and acceleration of that really really mm -hmm. entails and you mean you can't just be down in the congo and plug in and run all your mining equipment on electricity I'm yeah shocked. absolutely yeah. can because we we actually transport solar energy from the u.s to the congo <laughs> <laughs> it's just well, one long extension core and, and you know this brings us back to a point that you really got me thinking about mark when we talked about the ira historically the government would say look here's our goals we want less in the way of emissions right and the IRA didn't do that. The IRA said, we're going all in on electric vehicles. I don't know that we fully have grasped the math of that because we've talked on here. You can go onto the Volvo website, I believe, and they've done all the math. They don't see a break over until like 70,000 miles or right. 90,000 miles it's between the, the carbon footprint. And to your point, Mark, if we're going to have all these precious metals, that's a lot of diesel we're going to do some math on it. We've promised people we've had, and you've been playing with the math, but I do. I'm like working on the big rig blog. So okay. blog about, you know, now we're talking about cars, but what about the trucks that drive most of the miles on the roads? Well, the problem with batteries is when you go up and down mountains, which we have quite a few mountains here in the United States, come to believe it. Um, batteries don't work so well. Um, and, and, and it tends to be cold and it tends to be cold. <laughs> There people, you go. People like their shit in winter. That's right. <laughs> yeah, don't want to don't want to stop. So yeah, it's it's a it's a real issue that we're going to have to be thoughtful about. And and that's kind of what a general theme of BDE is. This is so important. Why can't we have an honest intellectual discussion about it and be thoughtful? Yeah, and, and it, it, you know, I've I've made the point to anyone who will listen. I I hope and wish the conversation moves away from more politically charged themes in terms to, you know, nobody likes pollution, right? Let's, let's, let's mitigate that and do things wow. and do you things. Said it. And you said it here. Let's do things with less pollution. Yeah. Right. No one likes pollution. That's probably a, we could probably all agree on that. Right. Yeah. All right. Hey, you know what? We actually have some updates to previous stories. Let's so, do it. So kind of we'll, we'll do a rapid rapid round of, of updates on here. You know, number one, I've said literally on my podcast, I know we've talked about it here. I've always said the Saudis just don't have it in terms of behind the spigot to just turn on. Do they have a ton of oil? Sure. If they want to go spend the money, they can deliver the oil. But it's not behind the spigot. It's not three to four million excess barrels. We've always said it. We've talked about some evidence on it. The Aramco uh, CEO told CNBC last week, the world's biggest producer can't do it alone. So we're yeah. getting more and more in the way of admissions. So I'm spiking the football again, but 
Well, it just proves the Aramco CEO watches BDE. That's right. Again, once again, we're proving our global reach. I got this. All right. Update number two. It has been revealed that Hunter Biden's $49,910 monthly rent payment to his dad exactly matches a deposit at the House of Sweden. That's right. Related to his venture with CEFC, the China Energy Company. Of course. And what did we say? What did we say last week on BDE that ultimately it's going to come out that Biden took documents through Hunter, sold those documents to Ukraine and China, and they're energy related. Absolutely. We're we're, we're right again. We're right again. We're I can't believe one of us hasn't been suicided yet. So just stay him, tuned for that. Him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not me. I'm good. Hey, I would never say that about Hillary Clinton, Kirk. I would <laughs> you keep that opinion. Prank call, she's prank a, call. She's a wonderful lady. Can we, can we insert a little bit of a, a current traditional energy theme here? I mean, we've we've heard from, I guess, early in earnings season, the the big two or three in oil field services, things look really solid, uh, particularly internationally. You've seen some of the the offshore names move. I think relative finally, those of us who are holders of some of those contractors. Um, have been waiting a long time. You know, I think I think we're going to see a bit more of a protracted response from capital. And one of the things I was talking with a friend of mine over the weekend who was conjecturing about, you know, whether EP companies or upstream companies need to diversify their portfolios more brings up the issue of longer cycle and in you know deep water is really the it fits the the bill the poster child of a long cycle <clears throat> upstream project well and, i think diversification was talking more about energy transition right that but within but where do you put the money but within your question. oil and gas portfolio are we going to start to see more interest and more enthusiasm around maybe either going back to conventional longer cycle projects, including deep water. Will there be diversification steps by those that aren't diversified that are quasi pure plays to, I to, theory, take, to take on that, you know, that aspect of the portfolio. I debated an Exxon executive in 2010, way before I knew anything today. I know less, but, but back when I thought I knew something, and I said, what is ExxonMobil? I mean, ExxonMobil is basically just a big bank. They have a bunch of cash and they have some know-how. Deepwater is a potentially huge um, cash cow if you can find the right resources, but you need a lot of cash to do it. I suspected that there would be eventually companies that create basically a digital ENP company and they just outsource. They get cash from the bank. They get know-how from someone else. And it's just all electronic. It's all software with a few people pulling strings. And you you know, outsource to, you might vertically integrate like Elon Musk has done. But if you don't, you hire service contractors. Why aren't we seeing more of this? And is it time? I mean, that's kind of, you walked me right into the, my thought is maybe it is time. Do you see that, Mark? Or, or Chuck, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think the bigger players who have either dabbled or gone headlong into U.S. unconventional have also shown that they are at least initially not equipped to play that nimble high rig count game. They're not much, at all. They're much 
more kind of EPC major project oriented. And that's a good, you know, that's a good capability to have if we believe there's going to be, it's probably too strong of a term to call it renaissance, but where else are we going to go if demand is going from what, 101.7 million barrels a day to 105 to mm -hmm. 110, let's say, you know, it, it, it starts to creep over time at the same rate of growth that we've seen in the past 30 years as, as we're in this kind of middle part of whatever the transition is. Um, you know, are, are we just inherently going to have to see more push toward conventional longer cycle? And, you know, will the, will the markets support that structurally is I think one of the more interesting things, at least from, from my standpoint, you know, you look at a, a deep water project, you're talking about a seven to 15 year project cycle time. Right. You know, it's interesting. So I drop a podcast tomorrow. Chuck Yates needs a job with um, uh, Cuppy, uh, Harris Kupperman. And, you know, he's basically a hedge fund guy, right? And one of the points he made, we talked about the super cycle coming in oil and he thinks deep water is a play in that. So he's got exposure to the service folks that are going to be out there because he's like, I don't see where else it's coming from. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm I long deep too. water. I can't because because I mean, you could look back at 2005 and go, hey, what we're doing in gas, if we can do this in oil, holy shit, that could be a game changer. It, right. it wasn't a prediction, but you could at least if if we doubled oil production, you could see why. I don't see anything like that today. You've got to go find new rock and deep water. I think is the only place with new rock. I've been saying this for a decade. I agree. I totally agree with you. It, the problem is having worked in one of the really big companies is if you talk to the executives, they are not necessarily big leaders. They, they, they listen to the market and do what the market kind of tells them what, what shareholders tell them you got it. It's almost <clears throat> needs to be hedge fund or private equity backed. Uh, someone that has a long view of the world mm -hmm. and says, well, we're going to go build when no one else is, because that's where you make the money. And I, I'm big on that. I do think that's going to happen. Yeah. And not to go too far off on this tangent, I just remember, you know, post Macondo, we, you know, we had a really a reassessment of the, the risk profile and doing things like redundant BOP stacks and you right. know, the, the notion that you're going to take on, you know, huge majority working interest and in, in take on that kind of risk. It, it, it's, I think it's a different, risk calculus in these major right. projects, particularly deep water. I, I don't think any, you mentioned the behaviors are somewhat driven by what the market is, is playing back or is, is asking for. I don't think that's limited to the, to the larger companies. I mean, you see a few exceptions, but everybody's behaving today and has per, for at least the past two years as the most dividends or as the most uh, disciplined steward of capital. Right. returning as much as they can sustainably Agreed. to shareholders. But let's take sovereign, let's take the sovereign funds of the Saudis or the Norwegians. What if they just said, we're going to go do it. We're going to go, we have a lot of capital. We have trillions of dollars of capital. What's, you know, 50 billion to go test. If we can do it, we don't need necessarily partners. Maybe we do, but I mean, is that a model that we're going to see? It's, it is a scale game to, to move the needle. So it's inherently going to have to come from 
a scale provider of capital. I'm, I'm, you know, my question that I'm wrestling with is that if somebody says we're going to take the lead here, let's say one of the super majors says we're going to take the lead here and really make a hard shift back that way. And, and not only readjust proportions of capital spending, but also raise them pretty substantially over a long period of time is the market going to support that. And you guys have hit the nail on the head. At the end of the day, it's not going to happen until the market says it will reward it. Are we right? on to something? Yeah, y'all are on to something. I mean, until <laughs> until we until the market says, "Hey, we're willing to trade you at you know twelve times EBITDA if you go out and find us a big old bright spot way out in the middle of the ocean," it's not going to happen. I, I think we're looking mm -hmm. at another year, and we'll start to see budget, major budget announcements uh, come out for twenty twenty three, closer to the end of next month. This is the longest earning season of the year is year end in Q4. So um, I think there's a lot of continuing crosswinds and prevailing headwinds that give them cover to continue to be very disciplined other than what they need to absorb inflation. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the short term, more of the same in, in trying to right. keep equity market share by being disciplined and returning Cash to shareholders. I mean, I, I talked to one of the CFOs of one of the multi-billion dollar um, EMP companies. I said, how's it going? He goes, man, I cut a check to my shareholders and nobody bitches. So <laughs> till that changes, good way to put I'm it. all good. So two other quick updates on stories. My prediction for the year was a neutered Russia uses a nuclear bomb in the Ukrainian war. Dmitry Medvedev. 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 You got Medvedev, it. You nailed it. The number two. He came out on uh, Telegram, the social media platform, and said the defeat of a nuclear power in a conventional war may trigger a nuclear war. Under uh, the guise again, of another BDE uh, kibble that just gets picked up. Exactly. So did that. And then kind of a final. We talked about this, I think it was two weeks ago. But Reuters has come out and said they believe that GDP growth in Europe in January is positive. So, you know, we've had the big fear that the European recession was going to warmer weather, cheaper energy prices. Bingo. I mean, let's just go right to the heart of that. Bingo. All right. So Mark and I have flexed our music muscle the last few weeks on the finger of the week. This week, it's our man, Kirk. And here we go with our finger of the week. Ladies and gentlemen, and shems, the and hems or its, the finger of the week goes to the Dallas Cowboys. And it not only goes to the fact that it is a incestuous, everyone's turning and pointing fingers. We see the Dallas Cowboys own Twitter handle throw, I mean, some serious shade at Dak Prescott. We saw the great, maybe the best tweet I've seen in a long time from our own governor, Greg Abbott. He says, quote, I swear I can kick as good as the Dallas Cowboys kicker, <laughs> end quote. I mean, what's going on with Dallas? I'm giving them all the finger of the week. They're imploding, and it's embarrassing as a Texan. So um, let's break this down. Um, I think when you look at 
the fall of the Cowboys from Jimmy Johnson kind of, and then you had the build back up briefly with Parcells. The, the key problem there was just drafting. They were trading, you know, second and third and fourth round picks to move up two spots in the first round and then missing the pick. It didn't work. I think they have righted that ship. And this is, so the guy who's making the draft picks is Will McClay. I know him as Willie. We went to Rice together. He played cornerback at Rice. Willie of McClay. course you do. And uh, so Will uh, went and played for the arena football team for the Joneses and has literally been a cowboy since he graduated from Rice. He stayed there. He's actually paid like their GM because they get periodic requests to interview him as a GM. I think they've drafted well. I mean, if you look back over the last – so I'm going to put the onus on the coaching, I think. I, and and I think McCarty's done a good enough job. He certainly – we're better off than we were before he took over. You know, we're better off than we were in the, the Jason Garrett era, but it's time for Sean Payton to come home. Mark. So, so I'm glad I'm on the other side of the table. I've been quietly trolling from – the origins of which are in my earliest days as a an Oilers fan growing up in South Texas and a lonely minority. And so any chance Campbell to, to troll the, the Dallas Cowboys, who I believe suffer like some other legacy institutions that have had great success but many decades ago, uh, Notre Dame, and maybe a little le- less of an acute situation in New York with the Yankees, is there's a syndrome that I think develops over time. It's elite by entitlement the the whole competitive landscape in in professional and college sports has changed and again humbly submitting that as uh, someone who's suffered with a couple of fan bases take that dallas right time. from the estonian's mouth i love it amen <laughs> mark, and, and you... my and mike renfro was in bounds <laughs> mark you've officially become a prick um <laughs> anyway Digital Wildcatters, thanks for joining us this week. It's a lot of fun, boys. Always a lot of fun with you guys. Enjoy your shirts. Maybe we'll all like wear the them together. Yeah. We'll get a picture or I'm something. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, we'll wear them on our road trip. We're going to take this on the road at some point. Uh, if you like the podcast, share it with a friend. Subscribe. Do all the things we need you to do with podcasts. Give comments and all that. 